Father, I do come to you first and foremost thankful for the honor and the truth of the fact that we can call you Father. And Father, we ask that you would feed your children now with the bread of your word. Holy Spirit, teach us and instruct us. Convict us. Save us. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, what a passage. Um, let me just say something about it. It's so hard, and I know I've said this before, to pick how do you deal with this passage? Do you break it down into four or five passages? Do you do it in one fell swoop? Truthfully, I think chapter 9, if it would have been possible at all, would have been great to do in one message. But let's be realistic, right? Um, so we've broken it up into two messages and again, it could have been broken up into 10 or 12. And the reason that we're doing these bigger chunks is that there is a lot of repetition in what's going on here in Hebrews. And it's purposeful repetition. It's not like, oh, this guy's just rambling on. Um, but there have been so many times over the last, I guess, few weeks now, uh, dealing with this passage, I'm like, man, I sure need to just take this and just really focus on this instead of the whole passage, but we're doing the bigger passages, especially here through chapter 9, um, just because it works. It, it's, I think it's what's best, and we might do it a different in a different time. So anyway, that being said, um, where were we, right? Uh, gone a couple weeks, um, and what a couple weeks it's been, right? <laughs> come back to a different life, uh, come back to different things. I was gone a week, and then we canceled a week. Um, so it's real easy to forget what's already been said, right? So three weeks ago now, in chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, we saw the earthly tent described, showing us the furniture and the flow of what went on in the tabernacle during that time, uh, the holy place and then the most holy place, the lampstand, the table, the bread, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and we saw that the priests went about their priestly duties in that outer, O-U-T-E-R. You realize you pronounce things weird. People are like, what's outer? Outer. Outer. In the outer holy place regularly, day by day, week by week, year by year. And the once a year trip into the most holy place was shown to be necessary, but not sufficient as the blood offered by the high priest there, even that once a year in that most holy place, the blood offered there for himself and for all the people was unable to perfect the conscience of the high priest or any of the people. But then the writer of Hebrews contrasted all that with, but when Christ appeared, showing that Jesus went not into a man-made tent, but into the heavenly holy of holies. And in doing so, he secured an eternal redemption for his people. And that passage ended with these verses. Um, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? To which we all said, hallelujah, right? And, and again, that's just one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. 
uh, in my opinion. Um, And it magnifies the perfection of the sacrifice of Jesus and the perfection of the effect that it had on his people. Jesus' sacrifice purified our conscience from dead works. So we're not trying to do things to please God anymore. His sacrifice purified our conscience so that we could serve the living God. So, therefore, our passage starts today. He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. Since Jesus offered his own blood in the true heavenly holy of holies, and since that offering of his blood made by himself purified the consciences of his people so that they can serve God, therefore... He is the mediator of a new covenant. And we've seen this truth of the new covenant put forth a few times already in Hebrews. And back, I don't know, some months ago, I said that the the author of Hebrews was going to go to great lengths to not only show the super sufficiency and the perfection of the sacrifice of Christ, but the betterness of this new covenant when contrasted with the old covenant. And, and we're right smack dab in the middle of that. He is going to great lengths to talk about this new covenant and how much better it is over the old covenant. And um, so that's been over a period of months, literally, that we've been talking about, several weeks at least, um, to establish that superiority of Jesus' high priestness to that of earthly high priests and the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. And we have surely seen that already, but we ain't done yet, not by a far cry. And here today, we see that Jesus is the mediator of that new covenant. Now that word mediator, it just gets fun to say after a while, right? So walk around all day and say mediator five or six times an hour and you'll you'll start laughing like you're doing right now. So uh, that word mediator means one who intervenes between two either in order to make or restore peace and friendship or to form a compact or for ratifying a covenant. Also a medium of communication and arbitrator. That's what mediator means. Okay, The Bible sense lexicon says mediator is a negotiator who acts as a link between parties and then says this at the end of their definition. Sometimes... Specific, specifically selected. And in our case today, we say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Under the new covenant, Jesus intervenes between God and man. Paul would say there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus serves in that office as mediator between God and man to restore peace and friendship according to the definition. And he was specifically selected by God to be the one who could and would fulfill this role. In order for the new covenant to be enacted between God and his people, Jesus had to intervene and help bring about the terms of the covenant whereby God would give his people new hearts and write his law on those hearts and in their minds and cleanse them of their sins to be remembered no more. As Jeremiah talked about, and we'll talk about that one more time before we finish today. So our mediator, capital M, Jesus did the work to make that possible. And so, the writer says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, this whole picture is beautiful, and and he's going to develop it really well. 
Jesus fulfilled the terms of the new covenant so that God's people, those who are called, and don't miss that, so that those who are called into this covenant, this new covenant, may receive what? The promised eternal inheritance. And that should make you go, oh, what is that? And we're going to look at that, obviously. So that we might, those who are called, may inherit the eternal, the promised eternal inheritance. God called people when? When did He call people? In eternity past, before the foundation of the world. And we don't have time to unpack this, but uh, Ephesians 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So the point of reading that passage there is just just to point out again that God called a people before the foundation of the world. Then He set forth the plan by which they would receive what He promised that they would receive. He set forth the plan so that they would receive their inheritance. And Jesus offered Himself so that we would receive our inheritance. His people, the called. Now that word becomes more important when we look ahead at what's said in the, is next in Hebrew, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now I think we're comfortable with the thought of redemption by the blood and death of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. I think we're familiar with that. We're probably too comfortable with it. But we have been redeemed by the blood and death of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, right? It probably even borders on cliché. If we're not careful, the blood of Jesus secures the forgiveness I need from my sins, right? Why am I forgiven? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The transgressions committed under the first covenant is a way of saying all the sins committed before Jesus died. Nobody receives forgiveness from God on the basis of their sins, on the basis of anything but... The blood of Jesus. That's the only basis for the forgiveness of people's sins. The blood of Jesus. That's it. Animal blood, we saw, was not able to perfect anyone's conscience. But in our passage today, the focus is not on forgiveness as much as it is about our inheritance. And forgiveness is part of our inheritance, I guess you could say, but it's only a part. So what is our inheritance that we receive from the death of Christ? Well, we have to move forward in order to try to figure that out. And why do I have Matthew instead of Hebrews? I'm going to blame Andrew McKay for this. I'll read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. I think I messed up when I was putting the slides in. I'll actually blame myself. So I won't hold that over his head. So Hebrews 9, 16 to 17. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Okay? So we saw the death and the resulting inheritance in the previous verse. But here we see that that death brought about the execution of a will. 
Now you know what a will is, right? Not that guy back there. But a will is where somebody gives the details of where and to whom their earthly belongings go to after they die. Okay? I mean, if you didn't know that, now you do. Now Strong's Concordance defines this word will as, now watch this, a disposition, arrangement of any sort which one wishes to be valid, the last disposition which one makes of his earthly possessions after his death, a testament or a will. A compact, a covenant, and he uses the word testament again, such as God's covenant with Noah. And that's the same word for will. Will, covenant, testament. So we see from this definition the close connection between covenant and will in biblical thought. The writer's using a word picture here to help us understand what happened due to Jesus' death for us. So he says... For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. You don't disperse people's stuff from their will unless you know the person is dead who made the will. Okay? Like Frodo comes back from his long adventure and they're like auctioning off his stuff. Bilbo, I said, did I say Frodo? Bilbo comes back from his long adventure they're auctioning off his stuff because they said he was dead. He's like, I'm not dead though. They're like, oh, well, what are we going to do with your stuff? He's like, he comes back to me. Sorry. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now this would be a basic, duh, type of statement if it was brought up not in this context, right? So if somebody said, hey, you know, I want the stuff that's in your will for me, you're like, well, that's kind of rude, right? It's kind of like saying, I wish you were dead, I like your stuff more than you. I mean, if if I just came up to you and asked what had to happen for you to get something from someone's will, you'd say, well, they have to die first, right? And they have to have named me in that will. Well, in connection with the inheritance, with that inheritance thought from the last verse, the writer is expanding on what has happened for God's people since Jesus died for them and offered His blood for their forgiveness. They have received their inheritance as set forth in the will, the covenant, that God made with and for His people. Christ's death unlocked the inheritance for His people. His people can now receive what has been promised to them in the will set forth that was to be executed upon Jesus' death. And now, here's a trick question. So who's the executor of this will? Well, we saw earlier, before this, that Jesus is the guarantor of a new or better covenant or will, that Jesus then is the mediator of that covenant. So it's like Jesus basically read his own will after his death because he didn't stay dead, right? Now imagine showing up at the reading of a will and the dead person whose will it is is sitting there reading it to you. You get this, and you get this, and you get this, and you're like, oh, thanks so crazy, Uncle Larry. Why are you here? Because you were dead, right? Thanks for dying and leaving me this stuff. That's a little awkward to a a live person, right? Well, of course, this is a bit different. And it's a picture to help us understand what has transpired, what transaction took place, how it took place, and why it took place. Here's the deal. God willed, covenanted, eternal life to His people. 
He promised heaven and holiness and grace and peace and joy and so much more for those who would be His. But to get what was promised, somebody had to die. And again, it's so cliche because well, it's Jesus. Jesus had to die. Right. And that's what happened. And in His death, in the shedding of His blood and offering that blood for our forgiveness, we come into our promised inheritance. Oh, the precious blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood, right? And it has always been so. Verses 18 to 22, which I have in here. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Oh, it just gave me 18. So let me read from my Sorry. Out of sorts here. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. So we go back to looking now in this section. It's like a real quick look back here. How this new covenant relates to the old covenant. And this is not as much a contrast, which we've been looking at primarily, as much as it is a look into the foreshadowing that God used in the carrying out of that old covenant. And remember we left off in that last verse before we read this about how what happened there was the shedding of blood for, the, for our forgiveness of sins. And now we're looking back at the Old Covenant and asking, now wait a minute, so was there forgiveness of sins back there? Okay? And this reaches back into that last message we had from Hebrews three weeks ago that was talking about Jesus entering not an earthly tent, but the heavenly holy of holies and presenting His blood there. And all this blood talk leads to our therefore, in verse 18, therefore... Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And let me tell you, folks, you read, if, if you've started a, a Bible through the year program and you're in the Old Testament, you are going to see a lot of blood. A lot of blood in that Old Testament overall, and especially laid out in that Levitical law in the first five books of the Old Testament. It's a bloody, bloody covenant. From the outset, from the inauguration of it, Blood was used to show the severity and the gravity of what was required in that covenant. After Moses read what God had laid out in the law, it says he took the blood of calves and goats and sprinkled both the book of the law that he had in front of him and he sprinkled the people under that law with that blood. Now that's a lot of people. Estimates of a million plus, possibly, in this exodus from Egypt to Israel. And he's sprinkling them all with blood. Blood. We don't even like the word, do we? Blood. How do you react to seeing your own blood? Or other people's blood? We're kind of like, ugh, it's blood. And, and that's what the covenant is screaming. Look at all of this blood. And without the shedding of this blood, there's no forgiveness. For sins. Sprinkled on the book, sprinkled on the people. And again, if you'll remember, we've said this many times over the years, covenants at that time were cut. They cut covenant. 
Those covenants were made by shedding of blood and declaring that if the covenant was broken, blood was to be shed as a punishment, the blood of the covenant breaker. But in God's law, God says that the blood of animals could be used to stand in for the people. And so God commands Moses to sprinkle the book of the law and to sprinkle the people under that law and even the tent and the vessels used in that tent for the conducting of the God-ordained worship. It's all sprinkled, washed, purified with animal blood. Blood everywhere you look. Blood in all these sacrifices. Blood on the book. Blood on the people. Blood on the tent. Blood on blood on blood on blood on blood on blood. Indeed, the writer of Hebrews says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And, watch this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And here's my Leviticus passage that I pulled up. For the life of the flesh, Leviticus says, is in the blood. And I have given it to you, God says, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And man, we could unpack that for a few weeks. That's, there's a lot there. And that's in the Old Covenant. That, that, that's in the Pentateuch. That's in the Torah. Life is in the blood. You got no blood, guess what you don't got? No life. Don't got no life. You don't have life. And thus it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Life for life. Life had to be given to make atonement, payment, satisfaction for the debt of sins. But this earthly human animal stuff didn't forgive sins, right? They couldn't even purify the consciences of those who offered them. And that's what we saw previously. So what was God's design here? Why were these old covenant believers offering blood? What was the point? They were to be obedient to what God commanded and listen and trust God with the outcome. God had established the precedent that the blood being the life and that life being poured out for them would be what He required, although it was required on a sin-by-sin basis in that system. So the Old Covenant called for blood and lots of it as the sins of the people were so pervasive. Now keep, keep that in the forefront of your mind. And that was seen in the inauguration of the first covenant with blood on the book, blood on the people, blood on their minds all the time and right in front of their eyes all the time. But why? Well, verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now these two verses, I think, blow the top off this whole passage. So what's going on here? Let me go back to 23. So we had seen that the earthly tent and the earthly vessels of the first covenant were quote-unquote purified with blood, even though they didn't really do any purifying, right? And as copies of the heavenly things, that was necessary, the writer of Hebrews says. But he says, the heavenly things themselves, the real, true heavenly things, had to be purified with better sacrifices than these. And the these here refers to the blood of calves and goats. So what was used, what was used on the heavenly things? And 
The second question that pops into mind is, what are the heavenly things? Stay with us. So what was used on the heavenly things? Well, we've already seen that Jesus made atonement and purified the heavenly things with his own blood, which was the only adequate sacrifice to appease the wrath of God and make full purification for the heavenly things. Okay? So, I've got to add a question to my other questions. So what are the heavenly things, we asked. The second thing is, why would heavenly things need to be purified? No sin in God's presence, right? Right? There's no sin in God's presence. So yes, that is right. So what are the heavenly things? And why do these heavenly things need purified? And I think the answer to those two questions goes together. So read these two verses again. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, the stuff on the earth, to be purified with these rites, blood of animals and goats. But the heavenly things themselves had to be purified with better sacrifices than the blood of bulls and goats. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. What's that last clause there? On our behalf. Hmm. All right. So let's see if we can unpack this. So what are the heavenly things? Did Jesus go into heaven and sprinkle his blood on a candlestick in heaven? Or a table with bread on it? Or an incense altar? Or an ark? Everybody's going, I don't know, did he? Did he go up there and sprinkle his blood on things in heaven that were those things to purify those things? Everybody's like, I don't think so, but man, maybe, I don't know. No, that's not what we see here. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, the author says, which are copies of what? The true things. But into heaven itself. Okay, so what then? Now to appear in the presence of God and look on our behalf. What did Jesus' blood purify in heaven? Not a table. Not a candlestick. Not an ark. Jesus' blood purified us. His people. So the question is not what did Jesus' blood purify? Who did Jesus' blood purify? The blood of Jesus was not for furniture or vessels, but for His people. And that's why the heavenly things need purified. Because we are sinful and could not bring our sin into the presence of God. So Jesus entered into heaven as a forerunner, as a pioneer before us, and appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. We needed purified. So Jesus offered His blood for us so we could be purified and be in God's presence. And we, being placed in Christ, have all of our sins removed. Now purified by His blood, which made atonement for our sins and perfected us. We were sprinkled with the blood of Jesus in the very presence of God. 
and he made purification for our sins. And he perfected us, verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So here again, we see that Jesus didn't have to do what he did over and over, day by day, year by year, repeatedly. Not like the high priest entering the holy places every year with blood not his own. For, because then, Jesus would have had to have suffered repeatedly. Like the offering of calves and goats for every sin that was ever committed. And the writer of Hebrews also notes the eternal nature of all this when he points out that Jesus' suffering and offering would have had to have happened repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Why? Because that's when human beings were created and if they are going to be purified by a repeated sacrifice, it would have had to have started then when they fell into sin. But as it is, and what sweet words those are, He has appeared. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And again, I'll say, oh my goodness. This clause is loaded with gigantic, eternal, God-ish implications. Jesus has appeared once for all. Now we've already seen this phrase, but we surely can't see it or hear it enough. After ages of animals and blood and unperfected consciences, Jesus appeared. I think of O Holy Night. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Jesus appeared. Jesus, the Son of God literally shows up as the God-man in a specific time and place. And He came to do what? To live a perfect life and then die on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of His people with His very own blood. To put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Again, no need for repeated multiple offerings. Once for all. And the putting away of sin once for all happened when Jesus offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of His people. And the author of Hebrews says he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do this. What a wild statement that is. But the New Testament writers say several times that the last days started in their days. The author of Hebrews has already said in his introduction back in uh, chapter 1, I think it's verse 2, that Jesus is God's way of speaking to us in these last days. So it's not surprising that he would say here that what Jesus did indicates the end of the ages. Everything before him pointed forward to him and everything God is doing and will do points back to him. And all of eternity will center around him as well. And that eternity will be realized starting with his return to earth as the king of kings, which is where we finish today. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for it. Again, that's quite a sentence. 
We've seen the non-repetitive nature of Jesus' death and sacrifice many times in Hebrews already, once and for all. Well, here we see that stated in a different and really a pretty awesome way. The author points out that human beings are appointed to die how many times? One time. It's appointed for man once to die. That's easy. Then he says that after our one death comes what? Judgment. Oh, that we would understand and help others understand this, by the way. God will judge every single human being, every single one of us, based on either our sinfulness or having been forgiven of our sins by the blood of Jesus. That's the two qualifications. Either you are judged as having had your sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus or you're judged as sinful, period. There's no loopholes. There's no fancy lawyer that says if the glove don't fit, you must acquit and you weasel out of here. That's an O.J. Simpson reference. Some of y'all are like, well, what are you talking about? But if the glove does not fit, you, you must acquit. Look it up. Um, none of that's going to happen in heaven. You're not going to be able to pay a lawyer enough to get you off. That's what I'm saying. Either you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus or you are sinful. That's the judgment that's coming from the eternal judge. And oh, that we could understand that and help others understand it. Man dies once. And after that death comes judgment, forgiven or not forgiven. But then the author goes a different direction than you might think with that thought. So, Christ, so, which joins this thought to the one just mentioned, so man dies once, then comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, which means he died once, like human beings do, and in keeping with the flow of thought, then what? Then judgment, right? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin again, because that's already been done once for all, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And that's the judgment part, right? So Jesus died once, and after that comes judgment. And the judgment that we see here, note the train of thought, one death to deal with sin once and for all. No need for Christ to die again. What he did completed the work of bearing the sins of his people once for all of them. So when he comes again, he will appear a second time and following the pattern not to deal with sins, but to judge. He won't be coming to deal with sins, but rather to pronounce the judgment of saved over those whom he died for. Die once, after that comes judgment. And the judgment coming for those he died for is not guilty. Saved. Redeemed. This one is paid for. And they are to enter into the eternal rest of worshiping him for all of eternity for what he has done for them. No wonder they are described as those who are eagerly waiting for him. How could they not be? How could we not be eagerly waiting for this? Our judge is our Savior and he is appearing for the second time to finally and fully save us. Having already dealt with our sins. Having already dealt with our sins. Christian. <laughs> How many of y'all are afraid of the judgment of God if you're in Christ this morning? You're like, maybe I should raise my hand. You shouldn't. 
But I think a lot of times we would. Oh, what's he going to say when he sees me? Oh, he's going to. Listen, I grew up with this inherent fear that the judgment seat of Christ was me standing in front of all of humanity, naked. Had to be naked, of course, because that's all your bad dreams, right? And God is playing my life on a screen. And everybody's going, ooh, oh, ooh, oh. And God's going, whoo-wee. That ain't it, y'all. That ain't it. My sins are dealt with. My sins are taken out of the way. I am paid for. I am eagerly waiting for the judgment of God. Why? Because I'm saved by His doing. Again, our judge is our Savior and He's appearing for the second time to finally and fully save us having already dealt with our sins. And so listen, Christian, when Jesus comes back, He's coming back not to weigh your sins in the balance and see if you've been good enough to overcome them. No! He's already removed them from the scales altogether by the shedding of His own blood. So when He returns, He's coming to save you. He's saying, I already saved you are. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And when He comes back, you will be finally and fully saved. He will fulfill the promise He made to make it so that you and we could be with Him where He is. To be with Him and see His glory like we saw on Wednesday night. In answer to His high priestly prayer. Listen to me, Christian. When you get into heaven and you stand before the judgment seat of Christ... Your sins will not be brought up. I don't know if we believe that. I think we hope it's true. In a non-biblical hope way. And I hope it works out for me that way. He's already removed your sins from you by the shedding of His own blood. So when He returns, He's coming to save you. To fulfill His promise. To make His promises reality. To make what we have seen by faith sight. He's coming back for you. He's coming back for us. And we will be the bride of Christ. Adorned by His work to present us to Himself, Paul says in Ephesians 5.27, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, we, might be holy and without blemish. That's what your judge is going to say. Your judge is going to say, there's my perfect spotless Yeah, I'm eagerly waiting for that. And this is the pattern that we see in the Scriptures and Hebrews and our passage today. One death sufficient to deal with sins once and for all, resulting in the salvation of God's people. And Jesus is the mediator of this new, better covenant, this will that, is to be ex- that has been executed because of His death. And His blood has cleansed us so that we, we, are the heavenly things that He has washed and perfected once and for all. That's a pretty good passage, y'all. So now we look to application. And now we could do 10 or 12. 
but we'll do three. We'll be looking at three points of application, three T's, testament, total, and things. Things, besides mediator, things has been my favorite word in preparation for this message. Testament, total, and things. Application, testament. We saw that a testament, the covenant, is portrayed in our passage today as a will. And I love the picture in this passage of the interchangeability of the word covenant and will and testament. This solemn binding agreement that God has made with us can be seen as God giving us our inheritance through the death of Christ. And what a beautiful way to think about your salvation. I literally, just a few weeks ago, finalized my will. I shouldn't have waited till I was 50 to do that. And neither should you, by the way. And I'm not even a lawyer that does will stuff. But anyway. Um, and the process was me thinking of the people that I was including in the will. And to use the legal jargon, bequeathing my earthly goods to them following my passing. Now, who would I pass stuff on to? People that I loved. People that were close to me. People that I wanted to have my things. And what a way to think about our salvation. To think of God, listen to me, bringing my name to mind. Not based on anything I've done. But because of the great love with which he has loved me, Jason. I'm going to write him into my will and I want him to receive this eternal inheritance which includes all this stuff. God bringing my name to his mind when he's distributing his eternal goods is quite a meditation, isn't it? So much of the old covenant centered around this concept of inheritance that the people of God were to get descendants, land, blessings, the blessings of the firstborn who inherited all that was his father's. And in the new covenant, all of that is fulfilled and realized for us in Christ. He is our inheritance. We are his inheritance. Colossians 1, 9 to 14. I'm just going to read this. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, different will there, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I'll take that in the will, Father. Thank you very much. And he said, I'll qualify you for that. I'll make you able to receive those things. Ephesians 1, where we'll, we spent a lot of time earlier, we'll spend a lot of time here, we'll spend a lot of time again in a minute. 
In Him, in Him, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I'll take that too. Thank you very much. And God says, yes, you will. Because He has placed us in Christ. Testament. The will that God made bequeaths you the blessings of eternal life, forgiveness of sins, because you are in Christ. And we'll get back to that in Christ thing in a minute. So that's testament. Now total. Once for all. Right? We can't not emphasize it every time it's there. It's impossible that we don't emphasize it. Does that make sense? We have to emphasize it. Every time it's there. You're like, we talked about this in the last message. Okay, fine. I don't care. We're going to talk about it again. Once and for all. We've said it a few times already through Hebrews, but we see it again, so we say it again. Do you know, Christian, believer, child of God, that all of your sins have been forgiven? Do you know that? And doggone it. If somebody wants to fight me over this, I'm going to fight them. Well, that doesn't mean, yes, no, it does mean. It means all of them. It means all of them. Well, it couldn't have meant the ones you haven't committed yet. Listen, when Jesus died, I hadn't committed any sins yet. When God placed me in Christ, I wasn't even born yet. So how could any of my sins not be future sins? Well, you didn't ask for forgiveness for them. Let's fight about that then. Do you know that all of your sins have been forgiven? We said earlier in the message that the old covenant offerings weren't able to remove sins. But the worshipers then, in that old covenant, did what God told them to do with animals and other offerings. And that blood was not able to perfect their consciences. So they were to be obedient to what commanded, to what God commanded, And then trust God with the outcome, right? That's what I said earlier. How about us? Here in this new covenant, how much more, to borrow the words of the writer of Hebrews, how much more are we to trust God in our current situation on this side of the new covenant with the all-sufficient blood of Christ having been given for the forgiveness of all of our sins? I'm afraid so many times our response is not that all of our sins have been forgiven. How much more should we trust God now that He shed His own blood for our sins? The old covenant believers sacrificed the animals, walked away and go, okay, God, I'm going to trust you, but I don't feel it. Oh, we say that, right? Okay, God, I know you said you forgave all my sins, but I don't feel it. Talk to your feelings. Discipline your feelings with the truth. How much more should we trust God now 
talked about Jeremiah and that new covenant earlier. Part of that new covenant promise that we saw in Jeremiah in 31-34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For, for, because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's part of this covenant. That's in the will. Jason gets me not remembering his sins anymore. Because the executor, the mediator, shed his own blood and God said, that's what I need to fulfill this will. Therefore, I will remember Jason's sin no more. And put your name in there if you've trusted in Jesus to be your Savior. Your sin is not brought up in the presence of God anymore. If the devil comes and lies about it, what does God do? He looks to Christ and says, I see righteousness. I see holiness. I see the will fulfilled. So I'm not going to remember those sins anymore. I've taken them from him. I've cast them from him as far as the east is from the west. They're at the bottom of the ocean, never to be brought up again. You... Devil are a liar. And your accusations are no more valid here. Are valid here no more. That's what Jesus has done for us. All of your sins. I can't say it enough. Colossians 2. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him and us from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All your sins. All your sins. Total. Complete. Discipline your feelings accordingly. Testament total, and finally things, the heavenly things we talked about. And what are the heavenly things? Know who are the heavenly things. It's us. It's us. All those vessels and items in the earthly tabernacle and temple were simply pictures of Christ. The lampstand points to Christ who is the light of the world. The table of showbread reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life. The altar of incense tells us that He is our great intercessor who ever lives to have prayers going up on our behalf. And Jesus is the ark of the testimony. Jesus is the mercy seat, the place where the presence of God dwells. And from what we've seen today, Jesus didn't have to go into heaven and sprinkle blood on those types of things. He fulfilled all those things and He purified us. We are the heavenly things that the blood of Christ has purified. And thus, oh church, 
Thus we are fit to stand in the very presence of God. Sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. And when Christ appears a second time, it will be to bring us into that place where we finally realize our true value and standing in God's estimation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus can bring us there because we are in him by his doing. We are not able to stand in the presence of God because of our goodness or our righteousness or our being faithful to constantly and consistently present blood of animals for every sin that we commit. Okay, every one, I brought some blood. It's not about us. For consider your calling, brothers, Paul tells the Corinthians, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you of noble birth. I'm from Helen. But... God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm a heavenly thing because of what God has done, not because of what I've done. Our boast is that we are completely unable to cleanse or purify ourselves, but we have been cleansed and purified by the blood of Christ And by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. He is the mediator of this new covenant and our very righteousness. He is the one who makes us the heavenly things. Last passage will be done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, who has blessed us, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Earthly things become heavenly things by the mediating work of our Redeemer. We are, by His will, in His testament, by the total removal of our sins, these new heavenly things that He was pleased to offer to Himself to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your will is perfect and You are competent 
omnipotent to bring us into your presence. And by your doing, in your will, we have received an inheritance in Christ. You have totally removed our sins from us, all of them. And now we stand in your presence, once the wounded now made whole, once your enemy now seated at your table, by your doing, for your glory, by the perfect finished work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Father, if there be anybody who has not confessed their sins and their need for a Savior and has not seen Jesus as that Savior, open their eyes, Holy Spirit, breathe life and help them to see not just their need, but your ability to meet that need in the personal work of Christ. And may they place their faith in him for their salvation. And may your pronouncement over them be not guilty because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said... Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us if you can. Members meeting Wednesday. Try not to use this door. Have an awesome day. I'll stop now.